Hello everyone, a very good evening. This is Vance here. Today I'm joining you from my home itself as a broadcasting. And yes, today's our topic is about ovarian cancer. And I have Dr. Ng Kai Lin, who is a consultant obstetrician, a gynecology, and an advanced laparoscopist and a uro gynecologist. All right. So without any delay, let's call Dr. Ng. Hello, Dr. Ng. Hi. Hi. So you actually become a regular speaker in Kopi events. I am, yes. And here's my coffee cup. <laughs> oh, okay. Where's so yours? You there you go. So what Yay. should we say? Cheers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us at Kopi events. I know um, International Women's Day is on Tuesday, 8 March. And we're also creating awareness on the women's health. Um, before we even want to go, maybe you want to do a, a quick introduction about yourself first because our viewers might want to know who you are as well, those who are just joining us. Well, um, it's my third time here, but my name is <laughs> Kailin. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm a consultant at OBGYN and uh, I'm currently practicing Van Gogh's Thank you, Doctor. Hospital. And both obstetrics and gynae. I do have a special interest in uh, advanced laparoscopy or minimally invasive surgery. And my other subspecialty is also in urogynecology, where I do with a lot of pelvic organ prolapse, urinary incontinence, stuff like that. So very happy to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to share with all of you. And we hope to be able to raise awareness of, of um, ovarian cancer, which is something that is very, very important to women all around the world. So thank you, Copy Events, for having me here. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you. So you're going to jump into the, um, before you even want to go into the question, I know you have prepared some uh, PowerPoint as well for our viewers. Uh, before we even get started, maybe you just want to talk a little bit on the ovarian cancer itself, and then we can later go into the questions. Yeah, so ovarian cancer is, is unfortunately one of the cancers that's unique to women. Uh, as a woman, we all know that there are certain cancers that only us females get and unfortunately ovarian cancer is one of them the other cancers that usually afflict women are as some of you may know breast cancer and womb cancer as well as you know fallopian tube cancer as well and all of these are actually and cervical cancer as well which is i think i believe that was the previous topic that we covered with the copy right. events right yeah so these are the, the cancers that are unique to women and all the more important that we should actually know a little bit more about them. And in my slides later, I'll actually show you the top 10 cancers that affect women in Singapore and you will find that ovarian cancer actually takes a spot in the top 10. So that is actually very, very um, significant and that's why we're actually here to talk about it. And if you would ask me as a woman which cancer... Um, you know, if I had to choose, of course, I, I would not want to have cancer or touch wood. But if I had to choose, like, to have one of the women cancer, ovarian cancer will be the bottom of my list. And I'll tell you why, because it's it's almost like a silent killer. You know, a lot of women don't really have a lot of symptoms. And when the symptoms really come, generally, we find that, you know, things may be too late to do anything effective about it. And that's why we actually want to be a step ahead, you know, and try and intervene even before, you know, your, your very obvious symptoms persist over weeks or even over months. And that's the reason why we're actually doing a talk here today. You know, Doc, uh, I mean, you, you said it well, um, you know, the ovarian cancer is one of the, you know, you don't want, and anybody do not want to wish to have that, right? Um, but, you know, when we talk about the presentations, um, what I know is bloatness, 
uh, frequent urination, and also uh, one more is uh, bloatness, urination, and what is the doctor? Is there any more other presentations? There are actually quite a number of presentations of ovarian cancer. Difficulty with ovarian cancer is not every woman with ovarian cancer will present with the same symptoms, and that's the really tricky part. And the other tricky part is that a lot of the symptoms that women with ovarian cancer have, a lot of other women with no ovarian cancer also has. You know, it's sometimes very vague, very non-specific. It could really well signal something, some other condition that is benign, non-cancerous, or not even related to ovaries. And therein lies the challenge on both women as well as healthcare professionals and doctors and even OBGYNs um, in terms of picking up this ovarian mm -hmm. cancer early. So... I will be covering um, you know, some of the signs and symptoms that women should be looking out for um, if they're worried about ovarian cancer. So I'll be happy to share with um, you in the slides later on. Thank you, doctor. Um, how about we are talking about our ovarian cysts? Uh, does it mean it will turn to cancer cancerous as well? So a lot of women, and for women in, in, in the audience now today, um, one take-home message is that the majority of women will have ovarian cysts at some point of your life. It is very, very common and some would say it's even normal. But there are many, many different kinds of ovarian cysts out there. So sometimes, you know, ovarian cysts can be benign or non-cancerous and sometimes it can be cancerous as well. So majority of ovarian cysts are actually non-cancerous. So even if majority of us at some point of life will have ovarian cysts, it does not mean it will turn cancerous. Of course, there are some features of cysts um, that will make us suspect that it's a higher chance of being cancerous or turning cancerous. But just remember that the odds are always, always in your favor. So even if you're ovarian cancer, don't panic, don't freak out. Get it checked out by an OBGYN or gyne your gynecologist and you know, go through with your gynecologist, you know, what is this cyst? What type is it? What is its chance of turning cancerous? And what is the interval that I should be monitoring this or screening for it? So that's the most important thing. Generally, if you do have a history of ovarian cancer, you shouldn't ignore that. So you should actually do a regular checkup with your gynae just to make sure that everything is still stable. You know, doctor, is that, I mean, I'm sure there's a yearly screening as well. Uh, but when we talk about either the uterus or the Philippine tube or even the ovaries, so is there a particular test that you'd have to do individual or you straight away do the CA125? Because that's the next question I'm going to come in, which is the CA125. Should they be worried when right. they so, the test? So CA125 is actually a tumor marker. Um, and uh, for a lot of health screenings out there, uh, nowadays they tend to, they tend to uh, consist of a, a component called tumor markers. And there are many, many tumor markers in the human body. Some tumor markers are geared more towards the colon and some tumor markers are geared more towards for the liver. And in this certain case, CA125 is the tumor marker that is more geared towards the ovary. However, and I will show you this in the slide as well, CA125 is a test which we call nonspecific, which means that in women with ovarian cancer, we do find uh, elevated or raised CA125, but we also find raised CA125 in a lot of other conditions as well, which are very, very far away from cancer and really non-related or even physiological. The other thing is that we need to know is that 50% of early stage ovarian cancer, if you do the blood test and you test for CA125, is actually going to come back absolutely normal. So it's not 
the end of the world, if you have a raised CA125, typically if you go for a health screening and your doctor comes, calls you back and says, okay, the CA125 is a little bit high, generally the good move to make will be to visit your gynecologist where they can actually do a quick check and make sure that the CA125 is nothing very much to worry about or is something that you actually need further investigation for. Um. You know, doctor, we, we talk about this screening and you say that, you know, one should do the screening. I'm sure the PowerPoint, you're also going to talk about it. But um, if let's say, is there an effective way of screening by a cancer, for cancer, other than the CA125? Unfortunately, and the short answer is no. And yes, you're absolutely right. I'll be covering that in the slides later on as well. Modern technology is not there yet, unfortunately. As women, we do, in today's day and age, we have a very effective way on how to screen for breast cancer. I'm sure you know about that as well. And as what we covered in our previous talk, it was is we also have a very effective way of screening for cervical cancer. But, you know, ovarian cancer remains the top elusive woman cancer, which still fails to have an effective screening program um, and so even for women whom we know that are potentially high risk of ovarian cancer, there isn't an effective screening program um, that we've found, you know, and active research is going on worldwide to try and figure out, is there a way that we can actually pick these cases up early or even in a pre-cancer stage to try and reduce, you know, the morbidity and mortality associated with this very sad condition? But the answer is not at the moment, although there are some ways that we can actually you know, look a little bit into uh, whether or not there's something that we should be worried about in terms of the ovaries. And I will do, I will certainly cover that in, in the later slides. Thank you, doctor. I mean, um, you know, the cancer risk is always a silent killer. And that's why we talk about any cancer. And of course, the good thing that medical science, we have these blood tests to even to measure certain tumor markers or even CA125 for a woman. But, you know, we also hear about this called surgical uh, staging because what is your take on surgical staging and how what is the procedure is all about? So as of any cancers, there's always an international accepted uh, consensus about how to stage a cancer. And ovarian cancer is no exception as well. So we do stage um, the ovarian cancer all the way from stage 1 all the way until stage 4. And obviously the stage 4 cancers are the latest stage and the most advanced stage. Uh, and I will show you, you know, in a very nice pictorial form what each of the stages actually entail. Um, but, you know, the unfortunate thing is that the majority of women, when at the time of diagnosis, we find that the majority of them are actually already in stage 3 and stage 4. Um, and... When the time comes in, of course, the treatment options will vary a little bit as well. Okay, doctor. I mean, um, I think it's time for us to go into the PowerPoint and then um, discuss even more further with our audiences. Sure. Yes, let's do that. There you go. All right, guys um, and girls and women and gentlemen, if you're out there, if you're seeing this, please do share because we are creating the awareness for International Women's Day, which is taking place on Tuesday, 8 March. At the same time, we are talking about the ovarian cancer, uh, silent killer as well. And with us is Dr. Ng Kai Lin with us. Okay, doctor, we are, we are seeing it. Right. Are you able to see my slides? That's right, we do. Okay, let's dive right into it. 
So this is the slide I was talking about, and it actually shows this. This is actually statistics taken from the local population from Singapore, and it is a list of the top ten cancers that affect women in Singapore on a yearly basis. So I've highlighted all the ones that you know are you know relevant to us as OBGYN, and it basically, um, the top one we know is breast cancer, and that's over eleven thousand women um in Singapore that is diagnosed per year with breast cancer. And then the other ones that, um, number 10 is cervical cancer, which we talked about in our last talk as well. And then right, sitting right in the middle at place number four and number five is actually womb cancer or otherwise medically known as uterus. And then, you know, at number five, right in the middle of the list would be ovary and fallopian tube. So in that cancer, we actually have almost about 2,000 women of new cases of ovarian fallopian tube cancers being diagnosed every year. So it's something that has a significant disease burden in Singapore. And that's precisely why we are, you know, talking about this topic this evening. But even... Even as I show you this list of top 10 cancers affecting women, we do have to put everything into perspective because life is all about perspective, right? So it is very important to know that an average woman has a lifetime risk for about you know, 1% to 2% of developing ovarian cancer. So it's not as though you, know, you throw a stone in the street and you necessarily hit someone who has ovarian cancer. It really is not the case. And ultimately, your lifetime risk is really just about 1% to 2%. Now, where does ovarian cancer come from? You know, in the olden days, we always thought that ovarian cancer just comes from the ovary period. It doesn't come from anywhere else. But later on, as research you know, went on, we realized that the cells covering the ovary are very similar to the cells from the fallopian tube as well, especially at the end of the fallopian tube that is in contact with the ovary. So we realized that the pathway of the ovarian cancer developing is actually quite similar between the ovarian tube and the and uh, the fallopian tube and the ovary which is why if you saw the list that i showed you in the previous slide it's actually classified in the same category in the same line as well the other times that we can see cancers that's very similar to ovarian cancer would be from the peritoneum and that's a medical term for cells that are lining the inside of your abdominal cavity and so these three sites are the main sites that ovarian cancer can arise from. Now, these are the stages of ovarian cancer, as we talked about before. So right on the left is, you know, in a very healthy woman, healthy pelvis, both left and right ovaries are perfectly healthy. When it comes to stage one of ovarian cancer, we do find cancer cells, but the good news is that it's typically confined to either one or both of the ovaries. As, as long as the cancerous cells are confined to the ovaries itself, then it's considered early stage or otherwise known as stage one. In stage two, the cancerous cells start to spread in the pelvic region itself, but is still confined within the pelvis, and so that is still somewhat contained in stage 2. Whereas in stage 3, you find that the cancer starts spreading to other body parts within the tummy. And I've written there, the average stage of diagnosis for a woman is typically in stage 3. Whereas in stage 4, which is the, you know, the last and the most advanced stage of ovarian cancer, this typically happens when the cancer is already spread beyond the abdomen and it's actually reached the other body parts, for example, the liver, the lungs, and so on. In cases like these, that will be considered actually stage four, unfortunately. 
Now, why are we here talking about this very important topic today? And it's really because of this table. If you look at this graph over here, if we try and classify women to whether or not they are diagnosed at the time of diagnosis, is the disease very localized? Is it still confined to the primary site, which is ovaries? Or has it already spread either regionally or to very far away sites in, in the body? You will actually see that 80% of women at the time of diagnosis already has have their ovarian cancer cells spread. And that is actually a huge, huge number. It really reinforces the fact that, you know, ovarian cancer can be a silent killer sometimes because by the time you actually get it diagnosed is really, you know, more or less majority of time is already spread. It's already in the later stages. And why is that important? Is because for all cancers, medically, we always look at a relative five-year survival rate. What does a five-year survival rate mean? It means that from the time that you get diagnosed, if we look at a time period of five years later following your diagnosis, out of 100 people who are diagnosed with the exact same cancer as, as the patient, exact same type of cancer and stage, how many of these people are still alive at the end of five years? And that is really what a relative five-year survival really means. So in terms of the five-year survival rate for ovarian cancer, you will see that in the early stage, which is stage one, the five-year survival rate is pretty good. It's 90%, which means nine out of 10 women will get through these alive at the end of five years. But when you look into the later stages, when it hits stage two, that's seven out of 10 women. And then when you move on to stage three, if you remember, that is the you know, majority of women who get diagnosed is stage three and above that survival rate drops to 39%. And by the time we hit the last stage, which is stage four, the survival rate again gets another drastic drop all the way down to 17%. So you can see you know, the, the consecutive fall in terms of a five-year survival rate as the stage goes more and more advanced. Now, what are the risk factors of ovarian cancer? Number one is older age, you know, um, majority of, of women who are diagnosed with um, ovary of the cancer are in their 40s and above, maybe in a perimenopausal stage and also postmenopausal stage as well. Women who are obese with a high body mass index are also at a higher risk of having ovarian cancer. Uh, those of um, women who have never given birth before or if they've struggled with infertility, they've been difficulty getting pregnant, unfortunately, they are usually at a higher risk of ovarian cancer. Late menarche, otherwise known as if you had your period start really early. So the average age of menarche, you know, it's generally about, you know, about 11, 10 or 11. And a lot of studies look into the effects of having early periods. And of course, different studies use different definitions. But generally, the consensus is if you're having your period start before the age of 9 to 10 years old, you're considered to be early. Or if you are actually some woman, someone who has had a late menopause, and in terms of definition, that's usually later than 55 years old because we know that over 95% of women will attain menopause by that age then that typically puts you at a higher risk of having ovarian cancer. HRT is otherwise known as a short form for hormone replacement therapy. And for women who are menopause and they go on hormone replacement therapy for whatever reason, 
they also have a slightly higher risk of having ovarian cancer down the road. Other risk factors for ovarian cancer is if you yourself, you had a personal history of related cancers such as breast cancer, womb or uterine cancer, colon cancer, and or if you have a positive family history. So you yourself don't have a personal history of these cancers, but your family has a history of say ovarian or breast or colon cancer, then that might put your family at risk of a genetic mutation. And there are many genetic mutations out there that can put a family or someone at a higher risk of ovarian cancer. The most famous one out there is, of course, BRCA1 and BRCA2. And that's the reason why I put a picture up of Angeline Jolene. Because when she came out into the public and actually said that she was diagnosed with BRCA1, that actually prompted a lot of women to actually look into their family history and have a little bit more awareness of actually what's going on in the family history when it comes to cancer. So it was actually a good thing that she was actually not shying away from her diagnosis. Um, but that, so far, of course, that's the, the, the most famous one out there. And for women who have been diagnosed with BRCA1, they have about 40 to 60% risk uh, lifetime in terms of developing ovarian cancer. And if they are diagnosed with BRCA2, which is another form of BRCA mutation, then they are at about 10 to 20% chance of uh, lifetime risk of having ovarian cancer. Lynch syndrome is also another genetic mutation that can give you a higher risk of ovarian cancer, and that's overall lifetime risk of about 8%. If you have a history of endometriosis, and that was something that we covered um, in the very first talk with Coffee Advance as well, you may be at a higher risk of ovarian cancer, although studies have not actually managed to pinpoint the exact percentage that that puts you at, but that is definitely a slightly higher risk of developing ovarian cancer down the road. And of course, if you're a smoker, then that puts you at a higher risk of having ovarian cancer as well. Unfortunately, in Singapore, we don't really have a, a very... Um, you know, set protocol about who we're supposed to screen for, um, you know, genetic counseling and see whether, you know, you're at a higher risk of having cancers. But this one is actually um, from the UK. And um, in the UK, what they define a woman as being an increased risk of ovarian cancer is if she has a first degree relative. Now, first degree relative has to be in your nuclear family, which means in your immediate family. For example, like your parents, your siblings, or your like your kids. That is actually considered first degree relative. And so if you have one relative who has been diagnosed with both breast and ovarian cancer, then you are at an increased risk of having ovarian cancer. If you have two relatives, both of them were diagnosed with ovarian cancers, first degree relatives or each other, then of course that puts you at a higher risk. If the two relatives, one of them had an ovarian cancer and one of them had a young breast cancer that was diagnosed in less than 50 years old and they're first degree relatives or each other, then that puts you at a higher risk as well. If you have three relatives and you have one that is ovarian cancer and then two with breast cancer, or you have all three family members with either colon cancer or you know stomach, ovary, womb cancer, small, small bowel cancer in two generations, then generally, if you do have this family history, we may suggest that you get genetic testing done to see whether you have any particular genetic mutation that may put you at a higher risk of ovarian cancer. Now, the important thing to know is that all affected family members must be on the same side of the family. So if you have one random family on your on your mother's side and then another random family member 
on your dad's side, then that, that risk doesn't quite add up. And what is very, very important to know is that if you have a close relative with ovarian cancer, it's not the end of the world. Your lifetime risk is still quite similar to the population risk. And these are people that we generally don't really need to do any genetic screening. Now, having known those, the, what are the risk factors of ovarian cancer, what are kind of things that you can sort of do to reduce your risk of ovarian cancer? We do know that women who've had, you know, full-term pregnancies and deliveries and they've also breastfed after giving birth, these actually will actually lower your risk of ovarian cancer. And the good news is that with every full-term pregnancy that you have, your risk of ovarian cancer actually drops with every child that you have. So a woman with no kids at all versus a woman with one kid versus a woman with three kids, the woman with the three kids is the one with the lowest risk of, of ovarian cancer at the end of the day. The second thing that can lower your risk of ovarian cancer would be using birth control pills. So birth control pills was originally invented for birth control, but you know over time, studies have actually shown that the longer you're actually on the birth control pill, the lower your risk of ovarian cancer. And what is most interesting is that even after you've stopped your birth control pills, that protective effect um, in lowering your risk of ovarian cancer actually continue for years after stopping the pill. So that is one upside of the birth control pills that I always tell my patients about. Now, we touched a little bit in the introduction about what the symptoms of ovarian cancer are and why is it so difficult to pick up ovarian cancer on both the patient and the healthcare professional side. It's because they're really vague. And copy events is right. One of the top symptoms of ovarian cancer is abdominal bloatedness. You know, and sometimes it may not be really abdominal bloatedness, but you know, some, some patients will say, you know, I just feel like there's a very vague discomfort somewhere in the region of my tummy. And that could be an early sign of ovarian cancer as well. Some people start feeling really tired. They don't feel like eating, you know, not much appetite. They start losing weight. They just eat a little bit and they feel super full. There's a little bit of indigestion going on. They may experience some changes in their bowel urinary habits or they may start actually having, you know, some disturbances in their periods. But unfortunately, because most women with ovarian cancer don't actually demonstrate very obvious symptoms until the late stage. So that is the reason why majority of women at the time of diagnosis is already at stage three and beyond. Now, it is very, very important to emphasize at this point of time that although these symptoms that are highlighted are indeed symptoms of ovarian cancer, very often, these symptoms can also be caused by reasons that are completely not related to ovarian cancer. And it can often quite, happen quite often. I mean, how many of us in the audience have actually had a little bit of indigestion going on or, you know, you feel just a little bit bloated after eating some stuff? It's actually very common and most of the time it's not really related to ovarian cancer. But what is important and what we hope to drive home in the talk today is that it's very important for us women to actually monitor the symptoms and acknowledge the symptoms at the begin. If it's different from what you know is normal for your body, and if you start having the symptoms you know, every day and it's, you know, it's persisting for more than a couple of weeks, then it is typically a sign that you should check in with a guy just to make sure that everything is all right. Very interesting, and how Doc. Do we Sorry. Yes. Very interesting. I mean, the presentation that actually showed us, right, is actually a, what uh, most women or even, you know, they will have it, right? Like the bloatness, indigestion, uh, yes. not losing weight. It seems like very, 
uh, what's your, the, the, the indications are not very strong. It's just like, you know, probably yes. you think, you know what, I'm fine. Yes. So you're absolutely right because a lot of the symptoms of ovarian cancer can be very non-specific, it can be super vague. So that's the reason why a lot of women at the time of diagnosis is already late stage. But the key to this is that if you're noticing the symptoms and they're persistent, they're not going away, and you know you're in tune with your body and you know it's out of the ordinary, that's when you get you need to get checked out. The problem is that a lot of women don't listen to their bodies or they sweep the symptoms you know, under the carpet, even though it's persisting and persisting for more than a couple of weeks, that's when trouble actually really starts. So it's very, very important to listen to your body and actually you know, pick up these symptoms. And you find that if these symptoms are not going away or they're getting worse, then you should get checked out. So... What do I mean by getting checked out? When you go to a gynecologist and, you know, if we are worried that you may be, you know, having any issues with your ovaries, we typically do something called a pelvic ultrasound. There's two ways to do the pelvic ultrasound. One is through the transabdominal ultrasound where we actually put an ultrasound uh, probe on your tummy. And it actually looks something like this on the picture up here. So generally, this scan is done with a full bladder meaning you almost feel like you need to rush the toilet, that kind of feeling. And that actually helps us be able to visualize the womb and the ovaries much better. This kind of scan is typically done in women who are virgins, who never had sex before. But the gold standard ultrasound is always done through the vagina. And the reason is, with the ultrasound probe inside the vagina itself, that actually shortens the distance to the ovary. So if you look at over here in the top picture, that transabdominal ultrasound has to go through the whole layer of your tummy wall. It has to go through the pubic bone. It has to go through your bladder, then your womb and ovary. So the distance is actually quite great, and sometimes we won't be able to see that accurately. Whereas through a transvaginal ultrasound probe, you can see the probe from here to the ovary, the distance is actually a lot shorter. So this scan is typically done with an empty bladder. And this scan is generally much preferred over a transabdominal scan. So as long as a woman has had sexual activity before, we typically would try to do a transvaginal ultrasound and that will give us a more accurate picture of the ovary. Now, a lot of patients ask me this, like, do I need to prepare for an ultrasound scan? You know, because if, if the gynae is going to stick something in my vagina, am I supposed to shave first? Am I supposed to wash first? Can I have sex before that? Ladies, don't worry. To be honest, me and all other gynecologists out there, we don't even register whether or not you've groomed yourself below. Are you shaven? Are you not? Did you have sex the night before? We don't, we don't register it at all. Trust me. So don't worry. Just get yourself checked out at the gynecologist. Now, we spoke briefly about tumor markers, um, about, especially about CA125. And this guideline is actually from the American College of um, Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which talked about the role of the OBGYN in early detection of ovarian cancer in women of, uh, at average risk. And so the guidelines actually say that, you know, pretty much what we actually said, there's actually no strategy for early detection of ovarian cancer that actually reduces cancer mortality. And a lot of people have looked into the use of transvaginal ultrasound and tumor markers such as CA125, either do it you know, separately or together in combination to try and detect ovarian cancer uh, early in average women 
unfortunately, they have not been proven to be very useful at all, unfortunately. And why is that? Because CA125, although it is a useful tumor marker that's targeted at the ovary, and we do know that it's raised in 80% of um, women with ovarian cancer, it may be normal in up to 50% of women with early ovarian stage cancer. So it's not that useful sometimes. It's not very specific. In addition, it may be raised with women with completely um, unrelated to ovarian cancer or reasons. For example, if you have endometriosis, if you're known to have uh, fibroids or even adenomyosis, if you're having some pelvic infection or inflammation going on, even if you're having your period at the time that blood tests were taken, or you're in early pregnancy, or you have you know, diseases of other organs, sometimes the liver as well, or even other cancers, CA125 can also be raised. So it's really non-specific. That is the reason why I said that don't panic if you're told that you have a high CA125 at health screening, just to get yourself checked up at the gynae doesn't mean that you have ovarian cancer, period. Just keep in your mind that there may be a lot of other conditions that may, may cause CA125 to be raised. So until you check yourself out with the gynecologist, there's generally no way that you'll be able to tell. Now, research thankfully, it's still ongoing because we are always in pursuit of this effective screening method. We're hoping to eventually reach the same as for breast and for cervical cancer as well to have a good screening method out there for women so that they can actually go for it regularly and try and detect ovarian cancer um, early. And this is the largest ovarian cancer screening trial today. What they actually did was that they actually recruited over 200,000 women and they followed them up over a period of 16 plus years. And that is a really, really long time. What they did with this over 200,000 women was they divided this group of women into three groups. One was no screening, which is basically what Singapore is like right now. We're actually not screening actively for ovarian cancer, unlike for breast and cervical cancer. The second group was just doing regular pelvic ultrasounds. The third group was doing regular pelvic ultrasounds and the tumor marker, which was CA125. And then they followed these three groups of women up for over 16 years. And what they actually found was that, you know, there was actually no difference. They didn't actually manage to reduce people dying from, you know, over in a tuber cancers. And so the conclusion after this trial, and that only came out last year, less than a year ago, was that general population cannot and should not be recommended. So in other words, there's actually no effective screening for cervical cancer. What does it really mean for all of us, all women out there in the audience? Really don't panic because at the end of the day, remember that your average lifetime risk is actually only about 1% to 2%. However, if you think that you might be having symptoms that are persistent or you are looking into your family history and you feel that, okay, I think I might be at an increased risk of having ovarian cancer, just have a quick chat with a gynecologist and what we typically do is that we'll discuss with you, um, you know, take a very detailed medical history and all that and see whether you are someone who actually needs screening and what is the kind of suitable involves that you actually need to get screened. A lot of time we'll actually have to draw a detailed family history um, to see what kind of risk you are at. And my experience with a lot of patients is that, you know, they will come in and they'll say, my aunt had cancer but I'm not actually sure what kind of cancer she had. Maybe it was a woman cancer, but I'm not really sure. Now, babies in our Asian culture, but you know, a lot of 
people may not openly discuss or disclose that they had a, had a cancer diagnosis. But really, it's a time and age now to be really open about it. Basically, like what Angelina Jolie did, you know, just step up and say, look, I have this diagnosis. And what that really helps is if you know your family history in detail, you know, actually know who in both sides of family have cancer, what kind of cancer, at what age were they diagnosed? Were they young cancers or, you know, cancers only when they hit like 80, 90 years old? That actually makes a significant difference to you. And that actually will help you in managing your risk. So how do we diagnose ovarian cancer? Generally, when a patient comes to me, we take a detailed medical history. We do a physical examination and that's both abdominal and pelvic examination. So vagina examination is a must. Then we then proceed to do a pelvic ultrasound. We also do some blood tests, which will include CA1 to 5, depending on what we see on the ultrasound. Sometimes we may ask for a CT scan. And if we do have a high degree of suspicion that the ovaries look funky, we think that might be cancer being hidden in there, we would then recommend for a surgical removal of these affected tissues to send for testing. How do we treat ovarian cancer? It really, really depends on the stage. The mainstay is still surgery. Of course, if any part of your body, any tissue actually develops cancer, the first instinct will be to whack it out, cut it out through surgery. But it really depends on the stage of ovary cancer at the, at the time of diagnosis. So the early stages one, the stage ones, and sometimes stage two, can be dealt with with purely um, surgery, mostly a stage one, actually. There are also different cell types of ovarian cancer that we have to look into. Some are a little bit more aggressive than the rest. We also have to look at the age and the fertility desire. So sometimes we have patients who unfortunately are still very young and they haven't started you know, trying for a family yet and they're really early stage. For example, the cancer cell is only confined to one ovary. And in these cases, then we'll have to have a very in-depth discussion about whether or not we can do something called a fertility sparing surgery where we just remove the cancerous bits, try and get her to you know, complete her family as soon as possible and then deal with the rest later on. But that's on a case-by-case -case basis. Chemotherapy is also a treatment option for ovarian cancer. Sometimes what happens is that you go for surgery first and then we use chemotherapy to clean up you know, the microscopic cancer cells that may be floating in your body. But sometimes in the very advanced stage of ovarian cancer where it's spread you know, in the pelvis or even beyond that, surgery may not be able to clear everything at one go. In these cases, we may use chemotherapy first to try and string the cancerous tissue to smaller and then go on to surgery to try and clear everything out. Generally, in terms of treatment of ovarian cancer, it has to be multidisciplinary, it's just not one doctor handling it because of its nature. So typically that will be handled by a gynae oncologist and also a medical oncologist as well if chemotherapy is needed to administer the chemo. Now, what are the key take-home messages at the end of the day? Number one, I need to emphasize again, the average lifetime risk of ovarian cancer is very low, about 1% to 2%. But the problem is that the symptoms can be really, really vague. And because of that reason, we do find that even in the present day and age, most cases of ovarian cancer are very advanced at the time of diagnosis. And that obviously affects the survival rate as well because it drops drastically as the stage gets more advanced. Unfortunately, we haven't found even with our modern technology, any effective screening methods available. But the most, most important thing is pay attention to your body. And if there's any doubt at all, do check in with your gynecologist who can then have you know, some investigations for your ovary as well. So that's the end. 
And the key message is, it's time to take care of yourself. And at this point in time, I'll be quite happy to take any questions if there are any. Thank you so much, Dr. Ng Kailin, for that uh, wonderful presentation that you did. I mean, um, when, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm looking at it, um, just not the earlier part when we look at the all kind of presentation, but these presentations are just like a normal daily life that any woman will have it, right? No appetite, bloatness, urination, and you know, a lot of other presentations. But it's cancer is still one of the uh, the most, uh, what, shall I, what shall we say? It's the most uh, cruel, cruel disease. I would say it's the most feared. Yeah, but yeah, you know, yeah. If, if you're having the symptoms and you find that, you know, it just happens occasionally and then it goes off, you know, just lasts for a bit, goes off by the end of the day, then of course, it's not something that you should freak out over. But if you find that, you know, you're having these symptoms, you know, it lasts mainly throughout the day, it comes back the next day and again, again, the following day and you find that, you know, it's been over one to two weeks and you're still having this problem, then, you know, sometimes you should get yourself checked out, you know. Just give a call to your friend, any gynecologist, and you know, just clear yourself. You know, you can have a peace of mind after that as well, and then you can monitor. And who knows, you might be having the symptoms because of some of the condition that is not ovarian cancer. And so, once you actually find that out, you can actually put your mind at ease. Thank you, doctor. So now uh, we're going to go to the question right now. Since we are talking about screening, so I have Carol. How often screening should be done yearly? Yeah. So again need to emphasize that at this point, present moment, there's no effective screening strategy for ovarian cancer, unfortunately. But if you are worried and, you know, if you're average risk, I would say that it's probably prudent to get yourself checked out on a yearly basis with the gynecologist. You know, just a routine ultrasound is fine. And that will also be useful in picking out common gynecological conditions that can happen around the age as well. So sometimes, you know, we're looking at the ovaries, but we may pick up other things like, you know, common things like uterine fibroids or adenomyosis or endometriosis. And so sometimes it's very useful to keep yourself, you know, up to date in terms of your gynecological health. You know, there's a lot of talk talking about, you know, your your cardio, cardio health, you know, your mental health and all that. But ultimately, as a woman, your gut health is also very, very important. So we do see a lot of patients who, the, their only time in seeing a gynae is actually when they're pregnant, when they're giving birth, or they're trying to get pregnant. And then after that, you know, the thing that's the end of it, you know, we'll wrap up the gynae visit and then they disappear for many years and then they come back only when they have an issue. They don't actually keep up regular screenings. So sometimes in terms of taking care of yourself, for us women especially, you need to take care of yourself before you can take care of other people. So sure. for these women, you know, I would actually advise that, you know, it's not actually a bad idea to check in on your, reg you know, your regular gynecologist, maybe about once a year. Of course, if you have some symptoms that, you know, worries you and all that, it's always good to check in a little bit earlier. But if you're average risk, average risk and you're not having any symptoms, you know, maybe once a year will be fine. Thank you, Dr. Ng. Um, we do also have a few questions that came in, but um, unfortunately, I can't show it out because it's from the uh, message itself. Um, one question we have uh, asked, docs, can a simple ultrasound detect ovarian issues? Yes. The, the quick okay. answer is yes. Um, okay. Of course, we do prefer a transvagina ultrasound, like what I mentioned just now. Uh, but basically, what we see on the ultrasound is that we check for the ovaries mainly for cysts. And on the ultrasound, there are certain features on ovarian cysts that can help us determine or, you know, suspect what kind of cysts you're actually having because there are many, many different kinds of ovarian cysts. You know, the most common ovarian cysts that we see are actually ovulation cysts, actually. So for all of us who are, you know, menstruating, not yet menopause, what happens is that 
your ovaries every month develop eggs and follicles. And, you know, then these eggs get released and they wait for pregnancy. And then once the egg gets released from the ovary, there's actually a cyst that's formed. And if you don't fall pregnant that cycle, your period starts, this cyst then, you know, resolves, dies off, and then the next cycle starts again. So that's actually the most common cyst that we see uh, on a daily basis. But there are also other features on the ultrasound that can help us determine what type of cyst um, is, you're actually having. So sometimes if we see, you know, for example, cysts that are very huge or cysts that may have like solid stuff growing in there and there's, you know, it's taking out a lot of blood flow or it's like many, many different small little cysts within this huge cyst, then we may um, have a higher degree of suspicion that this cyst might be cancerous. So there are certain markers uh, on the ultrasound itself that we will be able to tell, A, do you have a cyst going on and B, what type of cyst is going on and should we be concerned about that cyst? And from there, we'll be able to then give you a little bit more information about how often you should be checking this cyst out. You know, how often should you be screening for this? Or is there something that you should be not concerned about? Thank you, Doctor. I hope uh, that actually answered our one of our viewers. And um, before I take this question, Doc, I mean, I also have Sumita Ray. Um, can ovarian cysts cause big belly, like bloating, but permanent bloating or something like that? Yes. Uh, the answer is yes, actually. So, if, But only if the cyst is super huge. So I do have patients who have come in um, complaining of abdominal bloatedness or uh, some of them are really cute. They just say that I thought I was putting on weight. But actually, it was not really a putting on weight kind of thing. It was actually something that was growing in their pelvis. And sometimes that could be a result of a big ovarian cyst that has been growing for some time. The other common presentation that I usually see like a big belly is actually um, uterine fibroids. They can grow over years as well. And a lot of these women are really cute because they think that, oh, I thought I was just putting on weight around my tummy. Yeah, my pants are getting tighter. Um, you know, I need to loosen my belt, a few belt holes as well. Um, but what they don't realize is that they were actually growing a little baby in there, you know, in terms of their ovaries and their, in their womb, uh, in terms of fibroids. So it's something that you should, you should pay attention if you aren't, if you're clearly, you know, your diet hasn't quite changed, you're not like, you know, um, eating super fatty stuff and you're, you know, physically active, but yet your tummy is growing in girth, then it's probably time to get yourself checked out. Thank you, doctor. Um, before I take the one, I have another one here by Priya. Um, how fast can an ovarian tumor grow? Okay, so in terms of uh, ovarian tumor, if it's non-cancerous, then typically it doesn't really grow very fast. You know, it can either be stable, you know, over months and years and grow really, really slowly. Um, but if your ovarian tumor is malignant, otherwise no, otherwise cancerous in medical terms, then they, then they're known to grow extremely fast. And that's the reason why, even if we do a screening on a yearly basis, sometimes we're not even able to catch the development of ovarian cancer because it develops so fast. In fact, we've actually had studies that, you know, put women uh, who are at a very high risk, you know, for example, they're known to have, you know, family history, strong family history, or even genetic mutations that put them at a higher than average risk of developing ovarian cancer. And people have tried putting them um, on a regular ultrasound screening program every six months. And that is basically trooping down your gynecologist every six months to have all these checked out. And what they found is that the scan can be completely normal uh, at, the first, at the first round. And six months later, that woman has actually already progressed to advanced ovarian cancer. 
So it's actually pretty scary because it can grow very, very fast. And that's other that's why we actually know, know it as a silent killer. So the answer is for cancerous or ovarian tumors, unfortunately, they can grow very, very fast. And so that's the reason if there's any suspicion uh, on the scan that the ovarian cyst may be cancerous, we usually will advise for testing to be done. Thank you, Doctor. We have one year. Is Mirena LT option or is there any significant side effects to it in the long term? Okay, so that's a little bit unrelated to our topic of ovarian cancer. But basically, for those of us in the audience who may not know what Mirena is, is actually what is known as an intrauterine contraceptive device or IUCD for short. And it's basically a T-shaped device that is placed inside your womb. Um, and Myrena is actually the T-shaped device that's implanted with a hormone called progesterone. And this actually lasts for five years. It's a slow release of that hormones over five years and it's situated in the womb itself. Now, this was originally invented for birth control. And being a physical device in the womb itself, it actually is very, very effective for protection against pregnancy. But because it's implanted with the hormones as well, it also helps women with very heavy periods or very painful periods as well. So because of these effects, we actually started putting Myrena not only in women just wanting pure birth control, but women having menstrual problems, period problems such as super heavy flow, perhaps due to small fibroids or adenomyosis or super painful periods as well, we found that the Myrena was a healthy option that really helped them a lot. Now, in terms of side effects, the number one side effect of the Myrena IUCD is that it's going to affect your periods. So majority of women on Myrena IUCD either have super erratic or irregular periods. You can't really tell when your period is going to come, when it's going to go. So I always tell my patients who have a Myrena to always keep a pad handy in their handbag because you never know when your period is going to come. That is also the number one reason why women actually opt to remove the IUCD before the five-year expiry date because some of us women, we're just more used to having regular periods. You want to know that around that time of the month is when your period comes. So sometimes that sudden change in your menstrual patterns can throw you off a little bit as well. And that's, some, that's the reason why some people don't like the Myrena as well. But as long as you understand what the effects of Myrena are and what the side effects you should be looking at, then you know a lot of women find it extremely helpful as well. In fact, after the Myrena was actually invented, previously because of period issues, like heavy periods and painful periods, there were actually a lot of hysterectomies being done. You know, a lot of women had to go through surgery to remove their womb just to deal with these problems. But after the myrena was actually introduced and we started using them in these women as well, we found that the rates of hysterectomy or womb removal actually went down by 50%. So that's how effective it actually is. But of course, again, not all women are suitable for myrena. So if you're thinking of getting one, do speak your gynecologist who will be able to discuss the pros and cons with you as well. Thank you, Doctor. We just have another three more minutes. So, viewers, I know more questions are coming up, but we only have three more minutes. So, I'm going to just pull up another one over here by Jacinta. What increases my risk of C's? The quick answer is really nothing. <laughs> and that's, and, and that's, that's the reason why there is basically nothing that you can do um, to prevent this from happening. So, a lot of women ask me, is it something that I did? Like, is it something that I ate? Or is it because I exercise too much or I exercise too little? Uh, the answer is really not. Um, and the reason why cysts happen is because you have to remember at the end of the day that your ovaries are a very active part of your reproductive organs. 
They are active from the time that you start your period all the way until you end your period at the age of menopause. And not only that, they're active every month. So if you look at that and you're releasing an egg every month, Hi, Doc. I think we lost you. Hi, Doctor. Okay, we have uh, some screen jammed. Um, so probably we just have to wait for a while. I mean, it was an interesting uh, topic on ovarian cancer. With us was Dr. Ng Kai Lin. Uh, right now, she's been freezed. <laughs> Not uh, consciously, but subconsciously, she got freezed. I think because of the uh, uh, Wi-Fi connection. Probably we're just going to wait for a while. Um, for those who are just watching this, you can actually um, share it so more women can be aware about these conditions that uh, Dr. Ng Kailin actually told us. And also we are celebrating uh, with the International Women's Day, Tuesday, 8 March. So this month at Kopi Events, we have dedicated a lot of topics for the women as well. And very interesting topic on psychology, physical fitness and all kind of stuff. A very holistic approach that we are doing. Uh, probably we're just going to wait for a little while uh, to see if she can lock back again. And then if we have a couple of more questions, we can actually ask Dr. Ng on uh, expertise. All right. Dr. Ka Ng Kailin is a consultant and also a gynecologist at Clinicals Hospital Singapore. All right. We talked about the yearly screening as well as, you know, the certain presentations. But when we talk, talk about a little bit on the presentations, but she said that it, you have to find out because it's also what, a typical day a woman will feel it right you know not appetite you know tired and fatigue so these could be also a sign and symptom so it's very good that we listen to our body um not that you know we say oh you know what i'm just having a stomach pain so sometimes we do self-diagnosis so which is that's a problem if if there's a pain there's always a sign and symptoms the body is telling you so i'm coming from the expertise of the fitness area so um over the past eight nine months i've been working out if you all know um, during the period of time, you know, there's certain part of the muscles are very, very uh, tight. Uh, they don't want to move and they are pretty much in, in, in a very restriction mode. But, you know, sometimes you need to rest, you need to recover because if you don't, then possibility is an injury is about to happen. So these are the things that we need to look at. We always need to listen to our body so that, you know, we can avoid all these dangerous situations that's coming in. And we live in a very stressful environment as well. Uh, always eating fast foods and, you know, deep fried food and kind of stuff. So all illnesses is just coming in. So we have to do some precautions, obviously, right? We have to do certain precautions. We cannot go overboard. Um, in that manner, you can actually feel that you're actually getting into a tip top of your health. All right. So I'm going to call Dr. Ng again. Hello, doctor. Hey, I was <laughs> lost, back. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you lost. So I, I, I was taking the role of a doctor for a while. Okay, <laughs> so probably, I'm sure you do very well. Uh, so probably, probably the uh, viewers might be uh, messaging me, "Hey, Vance, I need to have a gynecologist appointment." I'm like, "Uh, okay, you got to look for Doctor Ng Kailin, not me." Yes, I was. I'm okay, so dog, sorry. I think you. I got cut off in no, the middle of question. Okay, doc, we got just got uh, another two more questions before we will end the talk show yeah. for today. Um. What increases my risk of C's? And we already covered that already. Yeah. Uh, but I have another question here by a viewer uh, mm -hmm. who asked us, can C's cause itchiness around the vagina area due to dryness after menopause? 
No, so generally the cyst doesn't cause any vagina symptoms usually. Um, but dryness after menopause is super, super common. And the reason is because after menopause, your female hormones take a very you know, sharp dive downwards. And that's really because your ovaries are sort of shut down. And this, the production of your female hormones, especially estrogen, has gone down quite, quite drastically. And estrogen actually has an effect in the vagina skin and it actually helps in terms of the skin thickness, the lubrication and so on. And so a lot of women after menopause, they start complaining of vaginaness and itching as well. Another very common um, um, symptom that they have due to this is that they start feeling as though sex gets a little bit you know, uncomfortable. You know, it, sometimes they get uncomfortable you know, during the initiation of sex or during the sexual intercourse itself. And that's something that's faced by many, many menopausal women. But usually it's not related to ovarian cysts. Now, if you do have this symptom, then usually it's quite easily dealt with. Check in with your gynecologist. And what he or she will do is have a look at the vagina condition below. And if it's truly really dry and thin because of menopausal skin changes down below, then you know there are creams and tablets that can quite easily help with that. Thank you so much, doctor, for this uh, information that you have spent with us for almost one hour, two minutes. But I do understand. Um, I mean, this is your third time with me in Kopi with Vance. Uh, yeah. So that we are getting ready our cups, right? I know, I know. I should have a cup here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, what I've gathered here, and probably the viewers also will be gathered, um, is that, you know, there are so many conditions that a woman will go through in terms of her health um, because of the reproduction um, I yeah. call it the system or the I know, organs. It sucks being a woman. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> it, it, it sounds. Uh, I want to say scary because women are really strong compared compared to men. When I say this, of course, men will be feeling, "Hey, men, we men are strong." Yes, we are. But look at the kind of conditions. Even the giving birth, right? Um, it's a bone breaking uh, numbers that we are looking at, right? Even though they go through that, and after which, you know, the fallopian tube, the ovarian, the uterus, so many other things, like you know pelvic congestion syndrome, so many things is happening within the abdominal. So it's a bit of a, wow, and so many testing have to be done on a yearly as well, right, Dom? I would say that, you know, we we make a lot of sacrifices and we do get ourselves exposed to a lot more conditions that men do. Um, but that's really for the privilege of being able to nurture a child over nine months and, and the privilege of, you know, childbirth and motherhood you know but but in exchange for that what happens is that really your reproductive organs like your womb your fallopian tubes your ovaries your cervix then gets exposed to a lot of potential conditions that can happen even after your childbearing years as you go into menopause and beyond that as well and so these are the things that you have to look out for as a woman in terms of your screening and that's really important as well thank you so much doctor once again so ladies and gentlemen out there International Women's Day is happening on Tuesday, 8 March at Kopi Events. We are trying to create more awareness and that's the reason why Dr. Ng Kailin is here to talk about the ovarian cancer for the past one hour to create awareness, to go for yearly screening is very important. If there's any kind of signs or symptoms you are uncomfortable and it prolonged for a certain period of time, I think then it's easy or rather it's necessary to go and check it out, right Doc? Yes, and happy International Women's Day for all of us in the audience. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was telling them earlier because I was taking the role of a doctor because your Wi-Fi connection went off, right? So I was yeah. telling them a couple of things on the fitness aspect. 
when the body is always communicating with us in kind of pains, in kind of symptoms, fatigueness. But if we ignore this presentation and thought, you know what, hey, I yesterday was having a hard day and today I'll just rest. But if the persistence continues, then I think the body is trying to communicate and we are not listening. And that probably the body says, you know what, you never listen to what I say. I'm going to show it to you. So this is what most cases happens, right? I mean, cancer is like, oh, hopefully they will find a cure for it. I know scientists are just going through day and night to find a solution, but there seem to be final results because our cells turn against us at certain point. And it's, it's puzzled why these things happen, right? Well, because the body is, you know, body is made up of a lot, a lot of moving parts. And the more moving parts that, you know, we know from a machine and the car as well, the more moving parts that you have, then the higher the risk of errors happening sometime, you know, down the road. Especially when your machine is, you know, nowadays our life expectancy for women is getting longer and longer. So, you know, an average life expectancy for women in Singapore these days is actually going all the way up to 80 plus. So if you think about a machine with all these moving parts that's continuously running, you know, all the way for eight decades, then of course, there's a very high chance that somewhere, somewhere down the road, things might go wrong. But if you think about it, our body is really like a traffic light system, right? So a lot of times we hope that we're all green. But when things start to go wrong and, you know, there'll be flashing signs and warning signs, that's when Ember is. And if you don't, you know, you're not in tune with your body and you don't listen to what your body is trying to tell you, then that's when Ember will actually turn to red and then that's where the trouble starts. Thank you, Doctor. I mean, um, it's to spend your valuable uh, and precious time with us at COVID Events on creating this awareness on obedient cancer. Um, this, is, this is the third time that you are here with us. I mean, I'm sure the viewers have uh, learned a lot and I'm sure they will share this video so that more women will be aware of ovarian cancers. Thank you, doctor. Um, and uh, we will catch up very soon offline. And uh, for now, thank you so much for joining me at Kopi Events. Thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. Bye, doc. Okay, that was Dr. Ng Kai Lin who joined us for the past one hour on the awareness of ovarian cancer. We learned a lot of stuff today. We talk about the CA125, the tumor markers, and we also look at the presentation, bloatness, often urination, and even you feel fatigue. And these are the signs and symptoms, you know, for women should take note. But of course, like I said, it's very common nowadays, you know, to have bloatness because of certain food that you eat that causes, you know, acidity or even air traps. So you feel that, you know, I'm bloated or even you put on weight. But if there's any pain, right, if there's always a sign that our body is very, it's a magical mechanism that works, it gives you a pain at certain point and telling you to stop means we got to stop. We got to address the issue. Uh, not ignore it and just move forward, then probably oh, it's going to give us more issues, right? We never know. So we have to listen to the place that we live on, which is our body. All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me at Kopi Events. It has been a great pleasure to be with you hosting Kopi Events for the past one hour and five minutes. On the topic of ovarian cancer, with us earlier was our gynecologist, who is Dr. Ng Kailin, who spent a beautiful one, one and a half hours, one hour, 10 minutes on the uh, presentations of ovarian cancer. I will catch you all next week again with an interesting topic coming up uh, this time. Yes, it will be a suspense. You will be able to know it within uh, two days before Wednesday, which is Monday, on the topics. For now, I'm going to sign off and you all have a lovely evening and thank you for joining me at Kopi with Vance.
Adiós, amigo. Chao, chao.